You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we do thank you for your for your blessings that rest upon us, your favor toward us in Christ. We thank you that we have this morning that we can gather together as your people to offer to you praise and worship and our offerings. We thank you that we can be here in freedom and in good health. We do pray for Jess that you would return him to health quickly and give him grace as he is, he is down and ill. We pray that you would return him to health in order that he might be back here to fellowship with us and glorify you through his teaching. We commit now our time to you this morning and pray that you would be honored here through what is taught through our discussion together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to talk this morning about the subject of preaching and teaching and its role in the local church. So after the preaching today, then everybody will have an opportunity in the next few weeks to give it a try. <laughs> Kidding, once again, Dave, Dave was starting to sweat. <clears throat> I don't think really that I need to convince this crowd of the necessity of preaching and teaching and the centrality that it has in the local church. Uh, this, this church, as a general rule, and I would think particularly the people that come to adult Sunday school class, I think have a, place a high premium on the subject of teaching and preaching and its role in the body. You typically, the people who come to adult Sunday school class, have a hunger for the Word of God. You long for it. You're the type of people that normally go to Bible studies during the week, and you read your own Bible during the week, and you have your own study time, and you enjoy Sunday school, and you enjoy preaching and teaching when you have a chance to listen to it. And not many of you here are ever going to be preachers. I don't say not any of you, but not many of you. Some of you may. I, I actually have. I would love if every man in our church if God would gift every man to preach and teach, I would love it. I would love to have competition for my, for my job, for my role. It's, um, I would love to be able to leave and have guys bidding on the opportunity to preach when I'm gone. So I cover this subject simply because it, I think it's a benefit to us as a body to reflect from time to time upon the act of preaching and what it is and what it's not and the role that it plays in building up the body of Christ and why as an eldership, we place a very high premium on what is taught and how it's taught. It's not just that somebody is able to open up the Bible on Sunday morning and read from it and then begin to talk. That's not sufficient. That's not adequate. But we do place a very high premium, not just on what is taught, that is doctrine, but also how it is taught, the method by which it's taught, and the philosophy behind the teaching and how it comes out. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And if you have questions about Sermon preparation, the task of sermon preparation, sermon deliveries, giftedness for preaching and teaching, the role of a pastor or teacher, how sermons come together, how sermons should be delivered. If you have a question about terms that we usually use in referencing to sermons like expository or topical or things like that, today is the time to kind of ask those questions. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin with a text. And this is a familiar text to you because it is going to culminate with Paul saying, commanding Timothy, preach the Word. The context is 
well, the context is actually, of course, the whole book, but we'll just back up to the beginning of chapter 3 just for our purposes this morning. Paul says to Timothy, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard of the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janes and Jambres' folly was also. So, verses 1-9, through nine, the Apostle Paul describes not only difficult times, but dangerous teachers in those in those verses. Their difficult times will come when this will be, these characteristics will be the sort of overarching description of people in general, churches in general, nations in general, just humanity. But then amongst those in eras like that, men will rise up, men like Janies and Jambres who opposed Moses, men will rise up who are depraved and deprived of the truth. They have a form of godliness. They look very godly, but they deny the power of godliness. They captivate people. They are led on by various impulses. And then he's describing these false teachers. Then verse 10, Now you, this is contrasting Timothy, but you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men, always back to the false teachers, and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So now, what does he point Timothy to in chapter 3? Dangerous times, deceitful teachers. You followed me, Paul says, this is my example that I set for you, and now you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. This was the sacred writings that Timothy's mother and grandmother had reared him on and trained him in, so that when Paul came into the uh, Lystra, where Timothy was, that he was able to, in preaching the gospel, Timothy quickly understood, oh, this is the Old Testament Messiah. Timothy got saved. Timothy's mother got saved. Timothy's grandmother got saved. They were all devout. And then the Scriptures had led Timothy to salvation. These Scriptures, Paul says, are inspired. And then we have our, our very familiar text having to do with the inspiration of Scripture. It's all God-breathed, inspired by God, breathed out. Theonustos. Theo meaning God. Nustos meaning Spirit. God-breathed Holy Scripture out. He inscripturated it. He wrote it through men. And that Scripture then is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped and for every good work. So what does, a, what does a believer need in order to be adequate and equipped for all of life? The Scripture, because it's profitable for teaching. So then we get into the implications of this, trying to imagine that the, the chapter division is not there at the beginning of chapter 4. 
I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's not picking up a new subject. The chapter division is an artificial chapter division. Remember, it wasn't in there when Paul didn't write with chapters added hundreds of years later. So just follow the flow all the way through. This is what the Scriptures are. This is what the Scriptures are profitable for. This is what the Scriptures can do. It's adequate for all of this. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So what is the implication of the inspiration of Scripture? If the Bible is God's Word, God breathed it out, and if in the Bible we hear the voice of God, then what ought we to do with it? Chapter 4. Preach the Word. Right? That's, that's the implication of it. If this is God's Word, then the number one implication of that is that we ought to be all about proclaiming it. Because it is when the Word of God is proclaimed, that is when the voice of God is heard. When the Word of God is rightly preached, the voice of God is truly heard. When the Word of God is not rightly preached, the voice of God is not heard at all. He doesn't speak through Scripture twisting. He doesn't speak merely through the Bible being read and then some other subject being talked about. He doesn't speak just when a Bible verse is quoted here or there to support man's ideas. He only speaks to His people when the Word of God is preached. So now this question is, what does it mean to preach the Word? It simply means to proclaim it. To elucidate it. To illuminate it. To explain it. To expound on it. To exposit it. So that God's people might see the text, hear the text, understand the text, and in understanding the text, then they hear the voice of God in that text speaking to them. Everybody with me so far? So that's what it means to preach the Word. And we preach the Word because it is profitable. And there are motives for preaching the Word that Paul gives us in chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. This is a charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Anybody who ever teaches or preaches the Word, whether you stand in this pulpit for Sunday school or behind the pulpit to preach or in a children's Sunday school class any or in front of Awana kids, Anybody who has the job of preaching or teaching Scripture should always have in their mind, I am standing in the presence of God to do this. Now, see, that should make you tremble if you're a teacher. That's why James 3.1 says, let not many of you become teachers, for you incur a stricter judgment. Because when you stand to teach, you are standing in the presence of God. And that is a, that is a terrifying, terrifying thought. That when a teacher stands up or a preacher stands up to bring the Word of God, he understands, I am God's mouthpiece at this time. And I'm either going to be faithful or I'm going to be unfaithful. I'm either going to be accurate or I'm going to be inaccurate. And I've been given a solemn responsibility. That's why Paul says, I solemnly charge you. This is serious business, Timothy. You have to understand, I'm giving you this charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And He is the judge. That's the second motivation for preaching the Word. Not only the presence of God, but that God is a judge. Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. And when He appears and when He comes, men who have stood in pulpits and men who have taught Scripture are going to have to give an account for what they have said about God's Word 
to God Himself. And we're going to have to give an account. Did I misquote Him? Did I misapply that? Did I misdirect people away from the true meaning of the text? Was I faithful to declare all of the counsel of God, whether it was profitable or, or whether it was sorry, popular or unpopular, since it's all profitable? Was I faithful to do what God had called me to do? He's the judge of the living and the dead. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, I do most of my trembling before before I get up to preach. Um, on Monday morning when I sit down with a text, one of the things that I pray is I pray, God, keep me from error. Help me to understand what this passage teaches. And there are times when I've opened up a passage and I think I understand what it is. But then after I study through it, I realize, okay, I have to, I got to adjust myself and my thinking a little bit to accommodate the text. And so... Do I tremble? Yes, I do. Particularly when I am talking about things which are outside of uh, subject matters that I'm really comfortable with. There are, there are certain subjects that I'm comfortable with and I could teach for an hour and a half without notes just because the passages are in my mind, the arguments are in my mind, the details are in my mind. But when I, I'm comfortable with that because I've already trembled over those things. But it's when I'm starting to talk about something that, okay, I haven't talked about this in a long time, and this is an unfamiliar text, and this is a difficult text, and the more difficult the text is, the more I tremble. Because when you're dealing with a text where people are just totally divided on how to read that text, and then I've got to stand up, and one of the jobs of a teacher or preacher is to stand up and say, this is what the text means. So there are times when I, I plant my flag in the ground and I say, this is what the text means, and I'm, the whole time I'm praying, boy, I hope I'm not wrong. And it, I don't think it's right for a preacher to stand up and say, I have no idea what this means. I think it's okay for a preacher to say, some people think it means this. And here are the arguments, and here's why I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. Other people would say this, and here are the arguments, and here's sympathetic to that. I can see both sides of this, and I can understand both sides of this, but I lean toward this, and not this, and here's my reasons why. And that just requires just a little bit of extra thought and a little bit of extra work in the study for a preacher to be able to do that. But it lacks integrity, I think, for somebody to stand up and say, some people say this and some people say that, and I don't know what I think on the matter. And I've heard guys do that. And I just think, if you don't know what you think on the matter, then why am I listening to you tell me what I should think on the matter? I mean, at least come up with some idea of come down on one side or the other, make a determination... Um, there's times when you've heard me say, this is what I think it is. I could be wrong about this, but this is, this is my best guess at it. And, and this is where I'm at on this passage or this text or this topic. Yeah. Any other question? Just Dorothy's got one here. Yeah, the the text says be be faithful to preach in season, preach the word in season and out of season. Does everybody know what that means? By the way, I didn't touch that. It means what's that? Year round, yeah. Spring, summer, fall, winter. No, it 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 has the idea of when it's popular and when it's not popular, when it's in vogue and when it's not in vogue, when it's the thing to do and when it's not the thing to do. What we do in this church today is not the vogue thing. It's not the end thing. 
It hasn't been. For 25, 30 years, it hasn't been the end thing. What we do in this church was the dominant, the only thing that was done within Protestantism beginning in 1517 for probably 50 or 60 or 70 years, or almost 100 years. That was the, after the Reformation, the exposition of Scripture, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, Knox, all of those reformers, all of those great men. Spurgeon was not an expositor in the sense that we exposit today. He was kind of a little bit of a different preacher, but still worthy of our respect. But Spurgeon was, was not like that. But all those early reformers, that was the, that was the seasonable thing. That's what everybody hungered for. Everybody did exposition. Nobody questioned that after the Reformation, other than the Catholic Church. They didn't exposit Scripture. They couldn't because then they would, <laughs> then they would all be abandoning Catholicism and go into Protestantism. But that's what in season and out of season means. Today it's not the popular thing. But you know what is interesting to notice? And I, and I watch this because I watch trends and I watch headlines and I read stories and I try and keep a pulse on what's going on out there in the church as much as I can. Expository preaching is, is enjoying somewhat of a resurgence in popularity. Which I think is good. Well, I know it's good. I think it is due to the fact that people are getting a little fed up with the other silliness that has been going on for the last 30 or 40 years. So people are starting, churches seem to be starting to come back that way. And guys like um, John MacArthur and the Shepherds Conference and John Piper and uh, R.C. Sproul and, and Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, guys like that have been leading this uh, resurgence in expository preaching. It's now, it's almost like it's so old it's new. And that's what I, I hear rumblings of people who are saying, oh man, where has this been all my life? Well, it's always been here. This is not a new method of preaching. By any stretch, the apostles did this. Explain Scripture. That's all expository preaching is. It's just the explaining of Scripture. The apostles did that. Jesus did that. The early church did that. The church fathers did that. The reformers did that. In the 1800s, men like Spurgeon and, and others of his time did that. Jonathan Edwards was an expositor. Calvin and Luther and... Those men were expositors and they preached. And today we have great expositors that are alive. Alistair Begg and John MacArthur and Chuck Swindoll and David Jeremiah. Um, those guys are all good expositors. They get up and they explain the text of Scripture and they do a good job with it. James McDonald's another one. And John Piper is an, is an excellent expositor. There's sort of this resurgence, but now the new generation is saying, oh, we found this great thing. That's Man, it's fun to listen to. It's fun to do. It's fun to see the results of it. And... and uh, it's never gone anywhere. It's just always been here. So that's what in season and out of season means. Uh, Don, you had a question? What's that? I covered it? Okay. Any other questions before we sort of move on? Yeah, Ron. Good question. The, the passage says, let many of you become teachers because we will incur a stricter judgment, James 3.1. Does that refer just to what he teaches or his lifestyle also? I believe it refers to his lifestyle also. That is why when, when the New Testament describes false teachers, it, condemn, it describes their lifestyle. They're men who are depraved. They're men who are filled with their lusts. They're men who can't control themselves. They're men who seek after money. These are false teachers, and this is the lifestyle that they lead. The New Testament describes that. And then Paul warns Timothy... I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
Guard yourself and your teaching closely. Watch yourself and your doctrine. Watch your lifestyle and your doctrine. And it's not because your, your lifestyle undercuts your teaching. It always does. Your teaching is ineffective if your lifestyle doesn't back that teaching up. If, if the pastor is not growing in holiness himself, then he's, he lacks an element of power in the pulpit. Necessarily so, because the Spirit of God doesn't bless with power and an unholy vessel. So the, the warning is that, yeah, we will, we will incur a stricter judgment. We need to watch carefully what we teach. But we need to make sure also that what we teach, we are seeking to live. And this really goes back to what is the definition of expository teaching? And here's, here's what I think one of the blessings of expository teaching is, not only for the pastor, but also for the congregation, or for the teacher as well as the congregation. When you sit down with a passage of Scripture and you open it up and you begin to work through it and you begin to study it, the goal for my sermon preparation is never just to create a sermon. I want to take this text and I want to put some illustrations and applications and some good stories in here and a couple jokes and a couple turns of the, and get it and craft it all up and write it all up and deliver this on Sunday. That's never the goal for me. The goal for me always is to take the text and then I come up with here's what the text means and here's what I, here's what I think God expects of us as a congregation in response to this text. So before I ever step into the pulpit, I always go through the process myself of saying, what does this mean to me? How am I going to change? What am I going to alter in my own life as a result of this text? And that's always what I seek to do. And sometimes it's something very small. Sometimes I'm dealing with a subject where I say, I've already been through this myself before the Lord. But this is a reminder to me that these are some things that I have dealt with. And then I, I ask myself, do I need to deal with this again? How am I doing on this? I sort of double check. But the goal always is personal sanctification. And the danger of guys who download their sermons offline or buy sermons from somebody else, or now the vogue thing is to have a committee of people in the church who write the sermon and the pastor preaches it. That's the end thing now. You have a, a group of people. I've actually seen pastors write about the sermon committee. And that's the people who get together and they say, what type of a sermon do we, do we think the people need? Well, we need a series on family. So we're going to do a 12-part series on family. And then the church staff begins to craft the sermon. They get the illustrations. They search for the quotes. They search for the movie clips. They search for all of the stuff that goes into that essential making of that quote-unquote sermon. And then the pastor takes that and he gets up and he delivers it as if it's his own. Well, what's the danger of that? One of the dangers of that is that it separates the preacher from the sanctifying influence of the Word of God for himself. The preacher never has to sit down and agonize over the text and allow the Spirit of God to cut his own heart with it before he steps up into the pulpit to give it to other people. He's isolated himself from the text so that the delivery of the sermon, the sermon doesn't necessarily have to affect the pastor anymore because he can just get up and deliver it like he's delivering a prepared speech like the President of the United States might to a group of people. But he has cut himself off from the work of the Spirit of God in his own heart to sanctify him. And it's a deadly thing. Any other questions or comments? Diane. Yeah, good question. The, the trend amongst evangelical churches for political involvement. Um, well, look, when you abandon wholesale, the one thing that God gives us to change the culture... You're going to grab onto any other tool or tool, tool that you can get your hands on. Um, 
So if you give up preaching the Word, and you give up evangelism, and you give up faithful, holy living and obedience for a more expedient way of growing the church, then when the culture falls apart, don't be surprised when the culture falls apart. There's a reason why Christians are mocked today in the media. It has nothing to do with our beliefs. Not at all. You know why we're mocked? Because unbelievers look at Christians and say, are you kidding me? You people do sermon sex series? You people have motorcycles jumping over your pastor on stage? You, you do these clown carnivals and moon bounces and you think that this is... You, you can't speak with authority when you abandon your only authoritative tool, which is the Word of God. So when you get rid of that and you're no longer proclaiming Scripture to people, you have no authoritative voice. People don't take us seriously, evangelicalism. Because what is their idea of evangelicalism? Their idea of evangelicalism is, is this goofy silliness that goes on in, in most churches. And so that's why we preach the Word. It's not just a, that this is the way that Jim and Jess and Dave feel real comfortable doing it. This is their little niche. This is how they like doing it. When we talk about the difference between preaching the Word and not preaching the Word, we're not talking about style. Some people, can, some people read their manuscript. Some people have extensive notes. And some people don't have any notes. Some people like to go through three points in a poem. And they like to alliterate it all. There's other people like me that if the three points in the poem don't come immediately to their mind on Monday morning, they just abandon that and say, here we go. We're going to walk our way through the text. And, and if we can have an outline, it's, it has nothing to do with style whatsoever. Some people are real humorous. Some people are very dry. Some people are very animated. Some people are not. Some people walk back and forth across the stage. Other people don't. Some people keep their hands folded in front of them and they preach and other people are very animated. It has nothing to do with style whatsoever. Some people preach on a, on a chapter of Scripture. Other people might cover a verse or three verses or three words. It has nothing to do with how much text you take. Do you know what? Say that again? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what that has to do with whether I preach or not. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. It has it has nothing to do with how much text you take. It, ha it has to do with what you do with the text you take. And that makes the difference between whether the congregation hears the voice of God in the text or whether the voice of God is muted by the preacher. It's muzzled. Jenny? Oh, two good questions. Is, is preaching just an oral presentation or can you write preaching? Preaching properly, as I'm describing it, is the oral presentation. But you can exposit Scripture in writing as well. So, for instance, uh, I don't have it up here, but my manuscript that I wrote this last week in preparation for the sermon is a written exposition of the passage. A good commentary is a written exposition of the passage. But it's not the same as preaching because preaching is a vocal proclamation itself. So, and does it have to do with the audience to which you're speaking? Is it just believers or can, be, can it be to any crowd? And the answer to that is it can be in, to any crowd. But the, the goal of teaching Scripture in the congregation is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. If I'm speaking to unbelievers, it's a different message. It's evangelistic. Like on Easter Sunday when I did, the, I did an evangelistic message. It was geared to instruct believers as to the nature of the sign of the prophet Jonah. But at the same time, it had a very heavy evangelistic emphasis because I know that there are a lot of people sitting here that were brought by family members 
who are not necessarily believers and probably aren't believers. So it is preaching the gospel, and we're talking about two different types of content or two different types of preaching. Um, in gospel preaching, you're still explaining Scripture, but it's for the goal of winning the lost. In teaching context in Sunday mornings, you're preaching Scripture, but it's really with the goal of equipping the saints for ministry. Yeah. Does does uh, does John John MacArthur keep his manuscripts? Most of his books are transcripts of his messages. A lot of them are. Uh, like his book, The Truth War. A lot of that came out of messages that he preached from the Book of Jude. Um, Charismatic Chaos, the same way. Chuck Swindoll. Most of Chuck Swindoll's books are simply his manuscripts collected and edited for print form. Uh, D, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones's books were all written. They were all manuscripts of his sermons, which he opposed. By the way, he opposed putting any of his preaching in written form, which is kind of interesting because he believed that the spoken word had a power that was not there in the written word, and that when you read it in written form, it comes flat. But when you speak it, there's a power, a dynamic there that is different than in the written form. So he, his argument was, if you take just a a spoken sermon and you transcribe it out it lacks something in the reading of it. Because there's a power that's there when the Word is preached verbally that is absent when that same, that same, those same words are just written out and read. And I agree with that. I agree with that. So before something can be printed, it needs to be edited so that it can be edifying when you read it. Thomas. Um, this is the written Word of God. That's right. Right. Okay. The the written word of God is as powerful as more powerful, I would argue, than any preacher. The so help you understand the power that I'm talking about. No, it's it's not it's not that it's not as powerful. There is a there is an element to the spoken word that is absent from the written word. And the, the element is, and let me see if I can encapsulate, because I would agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones when he said this, the element is that there is a dynamic in the act of preaching itself that is not there when those same words are simply read. There's, it's, it's the, it is the living Spirit of God that is meeting with His people at that moment. See, preaching is an event. If you live an event... It's different than if you read about the event. I can read about the sinking of the Titanic, but it's not the same as living it. Because preaching is an event. When I live through that event, something is happening that is different than when I read about that event. You understand that? Because in the preaching of the Word, something is happening in God's people and in the preacher and in the company of God's people together that is special and unique. That is why God has said that He has ordained a means by which He blesses His people and teaches His people, and that is the preaching of the Word. Because that event is different than anything else. It's different than the worship that precedes it. It's different than the fellowship that goes afterwards. And you can live through something and you can read about something, but there's an element of living through that event, that happening, 
when God meets with his people that is different than reading about it. Does that help? Right. Yeah, the the goal of a teacher is to the goal of a teacher is not to get up there and try and take the words of scripture and make them say what he wants them to say. The goal of the teacher really is to lay it out in a way that people can see it and hear it for themselves in a different way than if they just read it. So there is power in the written word, there's power just in the spoken word. But there's something that happens in the preaching act, in the teaching act itself, where God is present with His people doing something that is different than when I just read Scripture. It's not that one is more powerful than the other. It's that they are different events, different things. A different process is happening. Okay, Theta says it gives more life to the Word when I speak it instead of just read it. Let me take your illustration and change it just a little bit. It's really not that I'm giving a life to the Word that wasn't there to begin with. It's just that I'm, I'm presenting it or I'm seeking to explain it in such a way that you see the life that's there. That's really what it's trying to do. And Exactly. And So my job is not to bring a life that's not there. My job is to simply... My job is to simply explain it so that you see the life that's there. The same way that I see it in the passage. The same way that it is in the passage. And it's not readily available unless you're taking the time to study that out and, and do the meditation on it. Jeannie? Um, 2 Corinthians 3, oh, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Um, not really so much with preaching itself, because it, the idea there is is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, the, idea with, the idea with preaching is that, I mean, look, really, we could, we could all get here together on a Sunday morning. We could all, all sit down here after the singing. I could sit down up here and I could read the passage to you and we could pray and go home. And I could say to you, I could say to you, thank you, Thomas. I could say to you, everything that I need to say to you is right there in the text. You have read it. You have heard God's word. Let's go home. Now, that would make for an early lunch, but it would make for very starved people. Why? Because, yeah, you can read the Word yourself, just like I can. And I, I, I never, I actually presume that the people who come here are reading the Word the same way that I am and with the same passion that I am. That's my presumption. I, I presume that when we gather to hear together, we're all as hungry for, to hear from God as, as I am. But it's not enough just to simply read it because it, it is in the explaining of the text as it comes through the life and the personality of the preacher. See, a preacher's life and a preacher's personality are the tools by which the Spirit of God... I was going to say adds, but that's not the right word. They are the tools by which the Spirit of God brings the meaning of that passage home to the life of its hearers. Look, there are people who hate my preaching. Hate it. 
had people tell me that and leave. Well, not always. I mean, I, I agree with me most of the time. But, and I hate to hear me preach. So, but there are people who don't like my style. It's not funny enough, or it's not engaging enough, or it's not entertaining enough, or it's not, it's too deep, or it's, it's too slow, or it's too repetitive, or whatever it is. And, and so there are people who hate that. Um, but there is something in, there's something that, and I had to wrestle through this as a, as a young preacher, because I wanted to be like Chuck Swindoll. I don't want to be like John MacArthur. I want to be like David Jeremiah. I want to be like these great men. And so I kept thinking to myself, what do they do that is really engaging? What, and if I could model that, I could have the secret. And see, then I, then I realized it's not something that they do. It's who they are. It's their personality. MacArthur's different than Swindoll. And I enjoy listening to both guys. They both have, Alistair Begg is different than MacArthur. It's different personalities. It's the truth of God conveyed through the personality of the preacher that has a dynamic that's not there in just this written word when you read it. There's something that happens in the preaching event when light comes through a stained glass window. It's the same light. But there's something that we see through the prism of the window that allows us to see things there that are not there just in the light. Do you understand that? There's When the Word comes... And it comes through the personality of the preacher or the teacher. We see things in it that were that are not readily available or visible to us without that personality. That's why it is so important for the preacher to be sanctified and for the for the the word to do its work in the heart of the preacher, because it has to grind through me before it's going to come to you with any significance. It has to be it has to be pushed through the sausage grinder of the preacher's life before it's broken down enough for everybody else to see it. And then when it's pushed through that way, we get to see a different product. It's the same word, but I can take a passage of Scripture and preach it and be faithful to the text and everything I say be true and applicable. And then you can have another preacher take the same passage of Scripture and preach it. And I've done this because I listen to MacArthur and Alistair Begg. And I'll preach passages of Scripture that they've preached, and I've heard their sermons on the passage of Scripture, and mine is different than theirs. But it's not because I'm saying something that's different from the text. We're both saying the same thing, but it comes through the personality in such a way that there's a dynamic there that the Spirit of God uses. Right. That's um, not isolating the passage from its historical context as part of preaching the word. For you to understand what the word means, you have to understand what it meant to its original hearers. And if you don't understand the word, this, this passage, the same way that the original hearers understood it, you don't understand the passage. That's it. It's not a matter of what it means to you or what it means to me or what it meant in the 1500s. The issue is when the Philippians read this, what did it mean? And if you don't understand the same thing that the Philippians understood, you don't understand the passage, and you haven't heard God speak to you, and you don't have God's Word. You've just been robbed of it. That's the dangerous with this. That's the danger with the shallow preaching is that people don't understand what the passage meant to its original hearers, and it, and they can't put themselves in that context and ask themselves when they read this, what what did they understand Paul to say? And when you rob God's people of that by not presenting truth as it is in its historical context, 
then you rob people of the blessing of hearing God speak. And instead you give them something else. Dorothy? It is another tool. There's no magic. I've told you before, any monkey can do what I do. Anybody can be trained to do what I do. But that's the, that's the personality element. That's not the mechanics of what I do. The mechanics of what I do are very simple and straightforward. I study the passage, I put together the message, and I, I craft it. Now, I understand at the same time that my personality, my sense of humor, and my and I have a sense of humor that just, I think, plays in well with, with preaching for myself because I it, it adds to what God has called me to do. But there are guys who are far better at it than I am. I know that. And you know, when Dave, when Dave Rich preaches, he has a sense of humor and he does a good job. When he taught adult Sunday school class, when he, when he teaches, he does a good job. Dave has, or Jess has a different personality. It's not, we could all three teach the same passage and you're going to be fed different things in different ways from the same passage and we would never contradict each other on it, but we just have different ways of sort of bringing that to bear upon you. It's not, that's why it's not a matter of style. The mechanics or the philosophy of what I do are simple to understand. But taking that and then creating something for to feed God's people is different. Every chef prepares a steak differently. Right? It's the same steak. But every chef is going to have his own little, oh no, you sear it here, then here. You sprinkle a little bit of this, you put it here, and then over here, and you let it cool, and you do this, and you cut it. Every chef is going to prepare it just a little bit differently. You're still going to enjoy the steak, no matter which chef prepares it, but some... Some chefs you're going to enjoy more than others. And spiritual giftedness has a definitely plays a role in it. Um, that's why it's not completely fair for me to say any monkey can do what I do. Because there, any monkey can do the mechanics of what I do, right? Any monkey with my personality can do what I do. <laughs> Ron's observation is good. Some monkeys are more fun to watch than others. Right, very true. Well, we're out of time. So, I had a list of benefits of biblical exposition. And I just, I just sat down last night and I just wrote, I wrote out 14 of them. When the Bible is preached, the voice of God is heard. God's mind is revealed. God's people are fed. God's authority over His church is administered and seen. False doctrines are refuted. Truth is understood. The Spirit is able to sanctify both the preacher and the hearer. The goats are driven away. We've seen that happen here where you begin to preach something and goats leave. And they don't have any appetite for the things that we say. Now, not, not everybody who leaves is a goat. I'm not intending to say that. but <clears throat> The preacher is sanctified. A proper approach to Bible study is modeled and a proper hermeneutic is modeled. God is exalted and men is humbled. And let me just comment on that last one. Through biblical exposition, a proper approach to the Bible is modeled. You, it, what is taught, when you hear a sermon, you not only learn what the preacher is saying the text says, but you are learning a way of viewing Scripture. I never have to teach anybody that. 
I never have to teach anybody, okay, here's how you view Scripture. Here's how you study it. Here's how you interpret it. People learn that implicitly in how they listen to Scripture. You Take somebody who listens to your average false teacher who preaches shallow messages with the bereft of any biblical or doctrinal content. And when they pick up their Bible to read, they're going to approach the Scripture the same way that their person that they've been sitting under for 20 years approaches the Scripture. When you take a, a Bible expositor like John MacArthur, I'd be willing to bet you could go into MacArthur's church, pick any person at random, so grab somebody who's been there for 20 years, pull them out, open up a passage of Scripture, and try and, and, try and uh, go off on some left-field wingnut ideology about what this verse teaches. And that person will be able to say, no, 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 hold on. Context says this, and they would be able to do that. Why? Because you gain an appreciation for context and how you appreciate and approach the Scripture just by listening to how it's taught. People learn not just the content, but they learn how to study and read and view the Bible for themselves. And that is never, ever communicated in, an, in, a, in a sermon. It's simply caught by the people how to do that. Yeah, sometimes it does. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this time that we have had to discuss the subject of preaching and the health of it for the church. We thank You that You have given us the command to do that, that You have given us a hunger for Your Word. We pray that You would continue to sanctify us by Your Word and may it be used by You in every context in this body to draw men and women to Yourself, to equip them for works of service, to edify and encourage Your church. And may you be glorified as your voice is heard in every Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class, and with the children, with the students and the teens, and, and even through the message and the preaching of the worship service. Our desire is to honor you and your word in all things, in order that you might continue to bless us. And we pray that you would bring to this congregation and this body men and women who hunger for truth, hunger for your word, and desire to serve you and to love your people. We ask all of this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.